you've got a Bible, go ahead and open to James chapter 1 and turn to verse 9. James chapter 1, verse 9 is where we're going to be this morning. And uh, if you're new with us, we've been working our way through the book of James, started a couple of weeks ago, and we'll continue to do so for the next several months. And we find ourselves in James 1, verses 9 to 12 this morning. Um, and as we get rolling, I'll just give you a little kind of catch up real briefly as far as what we've seen so far, what James says, because James has been camping out, man, on this issue of trials. And he's been talking about trials. He's been talking about adversity and hardship in our lives, which many of us perhaps can resonate with uh, because of the things that we've encountered or experienced even over the course of the last week. But what James has said about trials so far is this. First of all, he told us back in verse 2 that trials are inevitable, He doesn't say if you face various kinds of trials, but when you face various kinds of trials. There is an inevitability to the trials that we will encounter and face in this life. In addition, trials come in all shapes and sizes. He says there's various kinds of trials that you'll experience, and there's a degree of complexity to every trial that you experience as well. So when you're in the midst of a trial, it's not just that it might be a physical diagnosis, but there's also emotional struggle that goes with that physical diagnosis alongside of financial hardship that might come with that diagnosis. And so whenever we go through a trial, that all these things get bound up together, and there's a complexity to our trials and a diversity to our trials. James says they're inevitable, they're diverse, they're complex. In addition, James says that what you need the most in the midst of them, and we saw this last week, is to, to really keep from sinking beneath the waves of the trials that batter against the shore of your life. What you need the most is wisdom. You need wisdom to know how to respond. You need wisdom to know what manner of course to take forward. You need wisdom to know that what God is doing in the midst of your trial is working something in you to be able to see their sanctifying value in your life, that they're forming you and molding you and shaping you into a clearer reflection of the image of Christ in your life. So James says they're inevitable, they're diverse, they're complex. You need wisdom. You need to see their sanctifying value in your life. And James doesn't leave this topic. He continues to push a little bit further into it this morning as we look at verses 9 to 12. So what does James say in verses 9 to 12 about our trials? Let's read it together. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, James writes these words. He says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Now, James doesn't move on from the issue of trials in this verse as he moves on to talk about the lowly brother or the rich brother and about our, 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 the, the, the rich man fading away or passing away in life like the flower of the grass. He's still pressing on about this issue of trials and digging down to another level to help us uncover really the, the, what, what's going on in our lives as we encounter these things. So he hasn't moved on. He hasn't changed topics or switched discussions. He's still dealing with the issue of trials. And so what do verses 9 to 12 teach us about our trials, and what should we do about it? The first thing they teach us about our trials is this, is that all of life is a trial. All of life is a trial. What we might say, James says here, is that there is a spectrum of experiences that we face in life. And everywhere along that spectrum of experience, we encounter trials. 
Listen to what James says. Because most of us, when we hear the word trial, right, we think of the hardships that we have to endure or the difficulties that we encounter in life. We think exclusively of the bad things that are happening around us or in us. We think exclusively of bad things, hardships, difficulties. But what James says here is that trials can't be reduced merely to the hardships we face, but they also at times include the comforts that we enjoy. Not just the hardships that we face, but also the comforts that we enjoy. Because James gives us an example here. It's like James comes to this discussion of trials and he says, listen, they're inevitable. They're diverse. They're complex. You need wisdom to see their sanctifying value. And it's if somebody in the audience kind of stops him and goes, James, I've got a question here. Right. Can you give me an example of what you're talking about? Because right? I'm, I'm kind of slow, and I can't really, I'm not, my mind's not really grabbing a hold of this stuff. Can you give me some kind of tangible example of what you're talking about? And James stops in verses 9 to 11, and he says, listen, let me give you a case study of what trials look like. Let me give you a for instance or an example of the various kinds of things that might serve and function as a trial in your life. And he says, all the way on that spectrum of human experience from the worst thing you can imagine happening to you that would drive you deep into depression and devastation to the greatest thing that you could enjoy and relish. He says all along that spectrum of human experience, there are trials. There are trials. And the illustration that he uses here is that of the difference between poverty and prosperity. He says both of them function as a trial in your life. Both poverty and prosperity, the the lowly brother who he compares then to the rich In verses 9 and 10, he says, listen, there are those who are on one end of this spectrum who have very meager means and perhaps scraping by at the bottom of the barrel. But then there are those who are on the other end of that spectrum who aren't scraping by, right? They are like launching off as far as material blessings and resources, But James says, from the one who's on this end of the spectrum in poverty to the one who's on this end of the spectrum in prosperity, both of those things function in their life as a trial. I think what James is talking about in verse 9 is he's talking about two individuals who are both Christians. Now, when you, if you read the commentators, they're going to be split on this issue right down the middle between whether the rich person in verses 9 and 10, James is, is James describing a believer or a non-believer? And I think for several reasons, James is describing a believer here because I think the actual way the sentence works and it's the parallelism is he talks about a lowly brother and a rich brother as it carries forward. In addition, the words pass away and fade away later on in the text as he talks about the rich man who passes away or fades away in the midst of all of his pursuits. Right? Those, that language isn't necessarily used as language of judgment elsewhere in the Bible, but just a statement of fact. Right? There's going to come an end to his life, his temporal existence. So I think James is talking about two Christians here. And he says on one end of the spectrum, you've got the one who's impoverished. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got one who is abounding in prosperity. And both of those experiences function as a trial in their life. Now, some of you go, I really, I get how poverty functions as a trial. And I wish I understood how prosperity functions as a trial. I don't quite get that one, Right? So how is it that these, both of these function as a trial in our lives? 
right? So poverty functions as a trial in our lives because in the midst of poverty or in the midst of meager means, and if we were to be real honest this morning, I doubt many of us or any of us could raise our hand in the room and say, I live in poverty, okay? But we might, have, we might say, I'm kind of lower middle class, <laughs> Or middle class, I'm not up here, right, in the, in the six and seven figure kind of range. I'm just kind of right here in the meager means, in a kind of humble means that I live in accordance with. And so how do meager means and very prosperous means, how do they both function as a trial? Listen, poverty or, or meager or humble means will test whether or not you will use or dishonor God to get what you really want. So will you use God or dishonor him to get what your, your heart is really after? So you might come to God and you might get this promise, right? That if you come to God, that God's going to sh- open up the heavens and shower down blessings upon you, all kinds of material goods and possessions, right? Would you come to God to use him to get what your heart really longs for and loves? And that's material things, stuff, Right? Or will you dishonor God in the way that you cut corners in your work or the way that you cut corners on your taxes in order to keep more money? Right? Will you dishonor him or use him to get what your heart really wants? Poverty always tests our fidelity to Jesus. Our meager means always testing our fidelity to Jesus. But so also does prosperity. Prosperity will test your faith by revealing just how much you trust God. So you go, I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. Right? I, that's not me, okay? I'm not very prosperous. But it will test your fidelity to Jesus because it will reveal just how much you trust God. Because as your level of means continues to escalate or increase and you become more and more prosperous, if indeed that is something that God has bestowed upon you, then it will test whether or not whether you're, does, here's the question. Does your prosperity lead then toward a generosity? Or does it lead toward a kind of tight-fistedness? Right? Whenever you accumulate a lot of stuff or a lot of figures behind the one in your bank account. Okay, I got like three zeros there. Some of you have like 17 zeros there maybe. But when you accumulate all those zeros behind the one in your bank account, then it becomes, well, how do I maintain this? How do I keep this? How do I hold on to this? Right? You begin to worry about all these resources and all this stuff that you've accumulated. Do you really trust God with it? And does your prosperity lead toward a generosity? See, in your poverty, are you using God to get what you really want, material stuff? But in your prosperity, are you trusting God and becoming a conduit by which he channels through in generosity into the lives of other people? Both poverty and prosperity test our faith. It's not one or the other, James says. There's a spectrum of human experience, and all along that spectrum, there are trials that we encounter and face. Now, this is just one example that James draws on here with poverty and prosperity. We could also talk about failure or success. In your failure, do you honor God? In your success, do you honor and trust God? Or we could talk about uh, adversity and privilege. We could talk about losing and winning. We could talk about in sickness and in health. Right? In health, will you honor God with the body that he's given you or will you worship the body God has given you? Or in your sickness, will you trust God? His plan is good. Even if the prognosis isn't. 
We could talk about as well being hired or fired, unemployment or a long tenure in one place around one group of people. Both of those are tests or trials in our lives. Or we could talk about being married or single. Both of those come with their own unique tests and trials, don't they? Yeah, having, done, being, having been married for almost 14 years, I had to do a little math in my head there for a moment, uh, and having been a singles pastor for about eight years, I got to see both experience and see just the unique trials that are associated with both of those seasons of life. See, some, so many single adults think that if I could just get married and find a man or a woman, all my problems would go away. Now they would just start. Some of us think if I could just get out of this marriage, then all my problems would go away, and they would just start. We might talk about being childless or having children. Both of those are a trial. Will you honor God by the way that you rear and raise them, teaching and admonishing them, instructing them in the ways of the Lord? Or will you honor God with the desire that he's given you, but it's not coming to fruition because it doesn't seem like there's anything going on in the womb? See, every, all across that spectrum of experience of human life, there are trials. James says all of life is a trial. Second thing that we learn about trials in this text is that trials are an occasion for boasting. They are an occasion for boasting. The word that James uses there when he says in verses uh, in, in verse 9 that the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, in verse 10, the rich boasts in his humiliation. That word boast there literally means to this, to express an unusually high degree of confidence in someone or something being exceptionally noteworthy or praiseworthy or of great value. You have a high degree of confidence that that person is of great value or that thing is of great value. So what James says when when he uses this word boast is essentially this, to boil it down to its most basic understanding is that to boast is to make a big deal out of something or to make a big deal about something. James says there's a boasting that should take place in our lives and you can make a big deal out of something by placing your confidence in it. You can make a big deal out of something by regarding it as as something that's substantial and lasting. You can make a big deal out of something by assigning great value to it. You can make a a big deal out of something by rejoicing over it, sacrificing for it, constantly speaking of it, or ordering your life around it. You can make a big deal out of anything or anyone And James, so to boast is to make a big deal out of something or someone. And James says here in verses 9 and 10, he says, There should be a gospel-informed boasting in our poverty or prosperity that is out of step with the culture around us. There should be a gospel-informed big deal-making on both ends of this spectrum of human experience and everywhere in between. You're making a big deal out of something or someone, no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum of experience. You're making a big deal out of something or someone, whether you find yourself in poverty or prosperity, with or without children, being hired or fired, being unemployed or having a long tenure. You're making a big deal out of something or someone, 
where, no matter where you find yourself. And James says that the lowly or the poor brother should make a big deal, he says, out of his exaltation, whereas the rich should make a big deal out of his humiliation. Now, from the world's point of view, that's kind of upside down, isn't it? But from God's vantage point, as he sits outside of time and space and looks down upon us, that is right side up. From, the world, from our culture's perspective, that is upside down. You don't make a big deal if you're rich out of your humiliation. And if you're poor, you don't make a big deal out of your great status. Because you don't have one in the world. But James says, for the lowly brother, he used to make a big deal out of his exaltation. For the rich brother, he used to make a big deal out of his humiliation. And if that's going to happen in our lives, no matter where we find ourselves on that spectrum of human experience, if we're going to make a big deal out of something or someone in the midst of whatever experience we find ourselves in, you and I are going to have to gain some clarity in our spiritual field of vision. In our spiritual field of vision. In the same way that corrective lenses give us clarity in our physical field of vision. Listen, I stand before you today as someone who has been in corrective lenses from the time that he was in third grade. All right. Like when I started look, trying to see the board in third grade, I was like, what's those characters up there? They look like something. I can't really make out what it is, though. So my mom and dad took me to the eye doctor and they put glasses on me. All right? And I'm incredibly nearsighted. And I can't see like if I didn't have contacts in right now, you guys would just be like a big mass of color in front of me. All right? Like, I can't function without them. I can't drive without glasses or contacts. I can't do anything without glasses or contacts, given correction to my physical field of vision. And when I put contacts in or I put glasses on, all of a sudden that big mass of color becomes distinguishable faces. And I get some clarity in my physical field of vision. And if we're going to have this kind of making a big deal out of someone, no matter what circumstances we are in, we've got to get some clarity in our physical, our spiritual field of vision in the same way that we need clarity in our physical field of vision. And listen to what James says. In order to, that, that clarity that you need is, is all found in the gospel. It's all found in the gospel. Because James says this, he says, you have to be able to see the present through the lens of the future and the past. You got to put these lenses on of looking through the future and the past in order to see where you are in the present. You have to be able to see who you will be in Jesus. And you have to be able to see who you have become by identifying with him. Think about what Paul says to the lowly brother, to those who are on this side of the spectrum, the impoverished side of the spectrum, those who don't have material goods and wealth and means, those who are on more what we would consider to be the hardship side of the spectrum. Think about what he says to them. James says that the lowly brother must see the present where they lack wealth and they lack status and they lack security in a worldly fashion and they lack significance from the world's view. They lack all this in the eyes of the world right now because they lack wealth. He says they have to see themselves through the lens of the future and identify themselves as one who is bound to the risen and exalted and reigning and returning Jesus who will one day make them co-heirs of everything. And so they make a big deal out of their exaltation. No matter where you are right now, no matter what's, if you're on this far side of the spectrum where you're out of work and you have no home and you have no children and you have not the world's goods and means 
James says, make a big deal. Make a big deal out of the risen and returning and reigning Jesus who will one day exalt you to become co-heirs with him over all creation. But then he says, he turns in the same, very same breath to those who have all the world's goods, who have been prosperous, who are in the midst of that trial. And he says, you need to make a big deal out of your humiliation. You need to look back and see who you have become by identifying with this Jesus who was despised and rejected and scorned and shamed and beaten and crucified. And Jesus says, if the world treats you that way, you should expect it because they treated me that way. So James says, regardless of what status or significance or security your riches and wealth in this age might bring you in the eyes of people who are around you, that you shouldn't make a big deal out of all the things and all the stuff that you've got. But you should make a big deal about how little you regard it because you've identified with the one who had no place to lay his head. There's a, there's, from the world's view, this is an upside down. This is from God's view. It's right side up. James says you make a big deal out of these things. Your exaltation, your humiliation. The fact that you're going up, the fact that you're coming down and being humbled. So you're not building your status or significance or security upon what you don't have in this life or what you do have in this life, but upon who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he will do. That's what James says. Now here's what this means. At least one thing this means. It means that the true Christian gospel, that true Christian faith, will always run counter to and against both, both the poverty gospel and the prosperity gospel. It will always run counter to both of them. Now, some of you have heard me talk about the prosperity gospel before, and so I'll hold my comments on that here for a moment, and I'll just talk about the, there's that corrective lens, talk about the poverty gospel for a minute, right? The poverty gospel teaches essentially in its multifaceted expressions that God desires us to be poor and sick all the time, right? That's what God's will is for you, to be poor and sick all the time, right? And so those who are truly holy and those who are truly righteous and those who are truly serving Jesus will live in a van down by the river, right? With a perpetual runny nose that never dries out, gout, be malnourished with no clothes, shoes, not even a toothbrush to clean your teeth, right? So you give up everything. You sell all your possessions. And you go live in a van down by the river. Now, see, the poverty gospel, and the poverty gospel, God becomes like the eternal killjoy. And if anything at all brings us pleasure or joy, you should give it away, throw it away, or take Tannerite and blow it up, right? That'd be fun, though, I have to admit. So blow it up or deny it altogether. So God wants you to be miserable, unhappy, and hurting all of the time. And the poverty gospel types make a big deal out of stuff that they've never had or stuff that they've given up. So they make a big deal about how they've set aside what they could have had or what they did have, right? They, 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 that's, they, they make a big deal. They boast out of that. But notice what James says to, the, to them. He doesn't say to the lowly they should boast in their poverty. He didn't say make a big deal out of the fact that you have nothing and you've given up everything. What does he say? Make a big deal about the fact that you will inherit everything one day and be exalted and rule and reign with God when he returns in Jesus Christ. 
He doesn't say make a big deal out of the little that you have, but make a big deal out of everything that you have in him. That's what he says. So true, the true Christian gospel runs counter to the poverty gospel. But the true Christian gospel also runs counter to the prosperity gospel. And it's multifaceted expressions that says God wants you to live in a big house, drive a Benz or a Beamer, take annual vacations to Tahiti, and never get sick. Right? Health and wealth, baby, it's all yours if you just trust in Jesus. Je- just say the name Jesus and all this, the storehouses of heaven are going to open, and you're going to have all these trinkets and stuff to play with all of your life. See, in the prosperity gospel, God becomes the eternal vending machine who's always at our beck and call, and we put in our righteousness and obedience, out comes good health reports, and all the stuff we could ever want. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be popular. He wants you to be influential, and he wants you to be powerful. In the eyes of those in the world. So the prosperity gospel types make a big deal out of all the stuff they have. Poverty gospel types make a big deal out of the stuff that they've given up or sacrificed. Prosperity gospel types make a big deal out of everything they've got, right? And you can have it too. And I'll even send you a prayer cloth. I might have gone too far. But notice what James says to the rich. Listen to what he says. He says they shouldn't boast in their riches. They shouldn't make a big deal out of the stuff they've got. In the same way that the poverty gospel types shouldn't make a big deal out of the stuff that they've given up. But rather, what they should make a big deal out of is that they have identified publicly with the one who possessed every riches, all the stuff in all the world. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he laid it aside. He who was rich became poor, so that in him you and I might become rich. Not in material wealth and goods and possessions. See, there are some who believe that is indeed God's will for our lives. And some of you have heard me deconstruct this statement before. But there is a church in our local community that has this as part of their doctrinal statement. We believe prosperity is the will of God for every believer and always to be associated with God's purpose for our lives. They make a big deal about the stuff that they've got or the stuff that they want. Instead of identifying with the one who had everything and gave it all up. So James doesn't say to those who are on this end of the spectrum of human experiences, make a big deal out of everything that you've given up or never had. He doesn't say to these people over here, make a big deal out of all the stuff that you've received or gotten. He says, rather, those who are over here, make a big deal of the fact that you're on your way up in the eyes of God. Make a big deal to those who are over here that you're on your way down in the eyes of the world because you've identified with the one that they crucified. That's what James says. Every trial is an occasion for boasting, making a big deal out of someone. So he says, don't boast, make a big deal out of how little or how much, how substantial or unsubstantial in the eyes of the world, but boast in Jesus. Make a big deal out of him, whether you have a lot or you have a little, or you're somewhere in between. Now, why is this so important? Why is this so important? Let me tell you why this is so important. Because whatever we are boasting in or making a big deal of, we are building our lives upon. Right? Whatever you're boasting in, you're building upon. It becomes the foundation and central to your identity. If you're going to boast and make a big deal about something, you're going to place your confidence in it. You're going to rejoice over it, sacrifice for it, build your life around it, celebrate it as your treasure then it becomes so central to who you are. 
Whatever you boast about is what you're building on. It's what you're constructing your identity around. And so you, you know, one of the ways that you can tell what you're boasting about in our particular culture is just to look at your social media feed, okay? Right? All your twits or tweets, right? All your tweets, all of your Instagramming, all of your Facebook posts. Oftentimes when we jump on social media, we are posting about things that we are boasting in. And I'm a poet and didn't even know it, right? So we're boasting about things that we, we're posting about those things that we're boasting in. We're making a big deal out of these things. And if you look at your social media feed, oftentimes you can see some themes begin to emerge there as people post about their work or what they're building or what they're purchasing, or as people boast and make a big deal about how much they're training or what they caught at the lake last weekend or what they killed in the woods last month. Or they're boasting and making a big deal out about what they're eating or how they're parenting, either well or badly, right? And sometimes even the self-abasing posts that we kind of throw out there on social media feeds at times is a boast in our humility and our transparency if we're not pointing them through that to God in our need for him? Or we post about our achievements, our accomplishments, our accolades, the awards that we receive, the banquets that we get invited to. We boast about our positions, our possessions, our promotions as we climb the ladder in rank, and we make a big deal out of these things. Now, is it wrong to celebrate the joys and the good things that God blesses us with in life? Is it wrong to enjoy them? Not at all. And we want to celebrate with you. But when you look at your social media feed, is there any, and I was convicted by this this week as I thought back on my own, is how frequently are you making a big deal out of Jesus in the midst of those posts as opposed to your work and your training and your fishing and your positions and your promotions and what you're hoping to purchase or have purchased? Are you making a big deal out of Jesus Because what we make a big deal out of is what we're building our lives on and around. And listen, James's point in verses 10 and 11 is this, is that there is no temporal possession or position. There is no temporal award or achievement. There is no temporal job. There is no temporal relationship that is sufficient or rated to bear the weight of your eternal soul. Because notice James doesn't say in verses 10 and 11, he doesn't say the riches and the wealth are passing away. What does he say? The rich man is fading away. The rich man is passing away. Those who have that temptation and that proclivity to build their identity on how much they have. So your life, he's going to say later on in the book, is like a vapor. It's like a mist. Here, he kind of uses the illustration of a daylily. You know what a daylily is? That's not a very scientific term for the flower, by the way, if you go look it up. Um, but it's what we commonly call it. It's these flowers that we plant in our gardens. And the daylily blooms beautifully April and May. And some, if you've got an old mass of them planted in the garden, they'll have hundreds of blooms on them. But they come up and they're gone in about a 24-hour period. That's why they call them a daylily. Because the bloom lasts, but it fades so quickly. So quickly. So James says the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits because what you're boasting about or you're making a big deal out of, you're building your life on. 
So if you're making a big deal out of how little you have, then you're building your life on your identity as one who's impoverished, not one who will be exalted. If you're boasting about or making a big deal out of how much you have, then James says, your life is going to go like that. And all the things that you thought were security and significance and status in this world are going to be stripped away. Stripped away. Might have been pretty for a little while. But they will not endure. What you're boasting about, you're building upon. And if your identity is built on making a big deal out of what you do or don't have, here's going to be the result in your life. You will either deify stuff and the people who have it, or you will demonize stuff and the people who have it. Right? You do one of the two. Because you think, I'm holier than that person. I'm more righteous than that person because I have very little. Or I'm holier and more righteous than that person because I have a whole lot. And so you'll always be suspicious of people who have more or less than you if you're building your identity around and upon temporal objects. And so you'll drive around Rockwall and you'll drive through neighborhoods and you'll be like, I can't believe those people live here. You drive through other neighborhoods and go, I can't believe those people live here. You'll either deify or demonize stuff and the people who have it or don't. As opposed to loving them. As opposed to loving them and serving them well. So what should we do? What should we do? I want you to listen to James' prescription in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, but when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James says this, be steadfast on both ends of the spectrum. No matter where you find yourself on that spectrum of human experience, be steadfast. And that word steadfast literally in the Greek is the word hupomeno, right? You go, oh, that's really enlightening. Right? The word meno means to stand, and you put hupo on the front of anything, and it's like our prefix hyper. Okay, so if you're a sci-fi dude or chick, right, you're sci-fi, kind of geeky sci-fi, right? I, I can say geeky because I, I kind of get in a little bit of sci-fi stuff myself. And so if, you're, if you like sci-fi stuff, right, then if you're in a spaceship that's orbiting a planet and you just kind of have the main drive on the engine that's kind of kicked in to kind of keep you in orbit, but you want to travel from this galaxy to the next one, what do you kick in? The hyperdrive, right? You put it in the hyperdrive and you just automatically, instantaneously, you flash forward to wherever it is that you're headed, right? It's like to the nth degree. And so what James says here is that what you and I need to be aiming at is this hyperstanding. No matter where we are on the spectrum, in the midst of the trial that we find ourselves in, to trust God with the stuff that we do have, to trust God with the stuff that we don't have and think that we need, trust God with the stuff that we do have and think that we have to keep, James says you've got to hyperstand to the nth degree. When you've done everything to stand, stand firm and strong and pass the test, he says. You've got to be steadfast no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum. That leads us to one final question, and that's this. What happens when you don't? <laughs> I know I haven't. I haven't always made a big deal out of Jesus, whether I've had a little or a lot. 
What happens when you don't? Because when you read this in verse 12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive what? A reward. What kind of reward? The crown that is life. That God will crown you with eternal life. As you stand the test in the midst of all the trials that you face, no matter what end of the spectrum you might find yourself on. And when you read that, it sure doesn't sound like approximation is close enough. James says, you got to stand the test and stand firm. And what you see over and over and over and over and over and over again in the scriptures is that God doesn't require approximation when he calls us to something. He requires perfection. I'm out. (laughs) That's not me. That's not me. So who is it that could stand the test, pass the test, ace the test with flying colors every single day? The truth is, there's only one who ever did that. His name is Jesus. Paul says in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself, the one who had everything, Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, at the very heart of the, why, did, why, why does James choose humiliation and exaltation? Is it because something his people, his audience could identify with? Perhaps. But perhaps there's something more. Because at the very heart and center of the Christian faith is both humiliation and exaltation. At the very core of what it means to be a Christian is humiliation and exaltation. Because at the very core of Jesus' experience in his incarnation was humiliation as he was scorned, rejected, and despised. But God exalted him. So that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The very heart of what it means to be a Christian is the experience of humiliation and exaltation. So no matter where you find yourself on that that spectrum, make a big deal out of Jesus. Make a big deal out of him. Not about what side of the scale you find yourself on. Make a big deal out of him, regardless of the side that you may slide to today or tomorrow. Let's pray together.